you worship team. Good morning, Life Church. How are you guys feeling today? You excited to be in God's house? Well, about a third of you are awake. It's good to see you, though, even if you are asleep. I don't know how that's possible, but if you're new here today, listen, my name is Pete. I have the joy of serving alongside my wife, Kelly, as co-lead pastor, and we are honored that you would decide to, you know, take some time out of the beginning of your week to spend it with us as we are officially into December and into the countdown for Christmas Uh, I'm excited for the season, my favorite time of the year. Before I dive into the message, though, I want to give a quick important announcement to let those of you uh, who are here know and regularly attend know that starting on the first Sunday in January, uh, January 7th, we are slightly shifting the start of our experience times by 15 minutes. Uh, We want to give a little bit more of a window. We have a shorter turnaround time between the first and second than we do between the second and third right now. But as the church has grown and as the first service has grown, it has created some bottlenecks for us in kids' life and in the parking lot as those of you who come to the nine are arriving and they're leaving. And so uh, starting on January 7th, the 9.30 is now going to be 9.45, and the 11.15 is now going to start at 11.30. So just make sure you mark your calendars. That starts January 7th. New service times begin. But today we are kicking off a brand new series uh, in, you know, that's going to take us to and through Christmas, and we're doing something that we've never really done before as a church. We're going to do a series on Advent. Now, I know a lot of you maybe grew up in a tradition or in a church that observed or celebrated Advent. I, however, did not. And so maybe you're like me, and the only context you have for Advent are the calendars that you see that go on sale everywhere, that you, you know, every day you open a window or a door and you get to eat a piece of chocolate, and then on Christmas Day, it's a bigger piece of chocolate. That's really the only context that I've had for Advent. Maybe it's, you know, a prayer that you pray each day leading up to Christmas, which are all wonderful traditions. But I'm discovering as I kind of dove into my research for this series that it is so much more than what we have made it out to be. So I want to give you a little bit of a background. What is Advent? Why do we celebrate it? When did it begin? Advent, the word, comes from the Latin word adventus, which is translated from the Greek word parousia, which means arrival or coming. And it is looking both to the first arrival of Jesus when he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, but it's also looking to the second coming of Jesus when he comes back. And so for that reason, the four weeks leading up to Christmas historically have been divided into two different celebrations. The first two weeks of Advent are typically focused on the second coming of Christ, and then The last two weeks, you kind of shift your focus into celebrating and remembering the first time he came as a baby. So Advent is just as much about looking back and remembering his birth as it is about looking forward to his promised return and encouraging believers to ready themselves for that. So we don't have a whole lot of um, clarity when we look in history at exactly when Advent began, but we do see a mention of it at the Council of Saragossa in 380 A.D. Now, that was not the origination of Advent, but rather at the Council, they kind of doubled down on the belief that Christians had long held that, that God became flesh in the person of Jesus and lived among us. Now, the formal observance and and worship that we see happen during this time uh, started around the 8th or 9th century. And Catholics and Protestants alike observe Advent both corporately in church worship as well as privately in people's homes. The specific dates of Advent kind of change from year to year based on when Christmas falls on the calendar. But it's always the fourth Sunday. It starts the fourth Sunday before Christmas and always ends on Christmas Eve. And historically, there have been four focuses on the four weeks of Advent. So Advent means coming, and so the first week is the Advent of hope, then it's the Advent of peace, the Advent of love, and the Advent of joy, or the coming of those things. So as I mentioned earlier, while we don't see the word Advent kind of mentioned in Scripture, I think it's important for us to understand that while Scripture is 66 books written by 40 different authors— over a period of 1,500 years, in three different languages on three different continents, the Bible tells one continuous story. There is one overarching meta-narrative, if you will, that all of Scripture is pointing to the arrival of Jesus. Advent means arrival. So for hundreds of years, prophets foretold that there would be a Messiah who would come. 
Now, in our culture, Advent has been reduced down to a calendar where you count down to Christmas. But at its root, Advent is a season of waiting. Now, I think there's a more um, relevant way in our modern culture to kind of explain Advent. And it's with three letters. O-M-W. Now, for those of you that know how to send text messages with shorthand, uh, if you don't know, you know, the shorthand for today's text message lingo, I'm sure people around you do. How many of you know what OMW means? Go ahead and shout it out. On my way, for those of you that weren't informed. So OMW is a text that you can send to somebody who's wanting to know where you're at, you know. So, you know, I might send this text in response to my wife when she typically texts me near the end of a work day. And if I'm gathering my things or in my car, I'll just voice text her back, OMW, to let her know I'm on my way home. You know, or maybe I'll send this text to somebody if I'm meeting someone for lunch and they arrive at the restaurant before I do, and they text me to let me know that they're there or that they have a table, I'll text back OMW, okay? Now, here's the thing about OMW. It's, it's complicated now in our culture uh, because iPhone has a default setting where as soon as you type in OMW, it automatically now spells out on my way with all caps and exclamation point, which now becomes this passive-aggressive way of me yelling at you for being concerned about where I'm at. So instead of it being about my lack of punctuality, now it's about your impatience. So it's complicated now. Thank you so much for that, iPhone. And here's the thing. I don't mind sending an OMW, but I hate receiving a text of OMW because I have no idea what that means. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about, because for some people, when they send OMW, it means they've just got out of bed a few minutes ago. Other people, when they send OMW, it means they're thinking about leaving the house at some point in the next 20 or 30 minutes. And other people, like me, are more literal, and they're literally in the car and on their way when they send it. So I don't know what that means. I don't, I don't know if, you know, I don't know where you're at. I don't know how fast you're going. I don't know what time you're going to get here. The reason we don't like OMW in our culture is because we don't like to wait, especially when we don't know how long we're going to have to wait for. And Advent is a season of waiting. And Christmas has a way of kind of throwing in our faces all of the things that we're waiting for in life, doesn't it? Whether you're waiting for a job, or a promotion, waiting for a relationship, waiting for a proposal from that person you've been dating for four years, waiting for a child, waiting for a child to come home, waiting to get out of debt, waiting for a relationship to be reconciled, waiting for a diagnosis, waiting for a miracle, waiting for a breakthrough, waiting for a loved one to find Jesus waiting for a door to open for you to step into the thing that you believe you've been, you've been called to do with your life. Christmas just has this way of reminding us of all of the things that we're waiting on God for. And waiting, if we're honest, is probably the most difficult work of faith. I love what Louis Smedes, uh, pastor, theologian, and author, says about waiting. Look at this. He says, waiting is our destiny as creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for. We wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending that we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. Christmas season kind of has a way of reminding us of all the things that we're waiting for in life. And we hate waiting, especially when we don't know how long we have to wait for. And Advent is a celebration of the arrival of the one that human history had been waiting for. When divinity put on human flesh and lived among us. That the one who created the stars and spoke the world into existence reduced himself to a little baby who needed to be cared for by his mom. I love the words to that one song that we hear at this time of the year that comes on the radio Mary, did you know that this child you delivered would soon deliver you? Mary, did you know that when you kissed your little baby, you kissed the face of God? 
That's what Advent is about. The one that people had been waiting for had finally arrived. But there was a whole lot of waiting that happened prior to his arrival. In fact, I don't know if you realize this, but in your Bible, right, there is one page that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament. One page that separates the Old Covenant or the Old Contract from the New Covenant. And this one page, I don't know if you realize, but it represents 400 years of history. 400 years of waiting. And when you, when you look at the last thing that God said to his people in the Old Covenant through Malachi, he says to them, I will send you a prophet who will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So God said to them, I'm, I'm going to send you a messenger like that. In other words, he sent them a text, OMW. I'm on my way. And then nothing. Silence. For 400 years. Not even a, like, those of you that use iPhones, there wasn't even like the dot, dot, dot that appears when someone begins to draft a text to you. By the way, I hate it, don't you, when the dot, dot, dot appears and then disappears and a message never comes through? It's like, I know you were about to say something. Why didn't you send it? There wasn't even that. Just, hey, I'm on my way. And then they waited 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, 400 years of waiting. Now there's a text that you can send back to somebody who sends you an OMW, and it's the text WYA. And those of you that don't know text message shorthand, shout out, who knows what WYA stands for? Where are you at? And I wonder how many times the Israelites in that 400 years kind of texted God back and said, hey, God, where are you at? Like you said you were gonna send a messenger, but he hasn't come yet. Where are you at? God, have you forgotten about us? God, do you even care about us? This doesn't look like what I thought it would look like. God, where are you at? Silence. And I wonder how many times we've kind of prayed that prayer. God, are you there? This doesn't look like what I thought. You didn't do the thing that I thought you said you were going to do. God, where are you at? Do you care about me? Have you forgotten about me? In our waiting, we offer up these prayers of God. Where are you at? And if you feel like you're in that place today, I want you to know that you are in really good company. Because for thousands of years, the history of our faith is filled with people who have had to wait. I mean, when you just flip that one page and begin to read Matthew's gospel, which is the first book in the New Testament... Matthew lists the genealogy of Jesus, all of the people that were in his, you know, lineage leading up to him. And if you look at the text in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, just the first part of the genealogy, the first guy that Matthew lists in the genealogy is Abraham. And Abraham is kind of the patron saint of waiting. I mean, this is the who's who of waiting. But Abraham, you know, was 75 years old when God promised him that he was going to have a son. Can you imagine being 75 and being told you're going to be a father? It's like, come on, Sarah. (laughs) He probably thought it was going to happen quickly, but it didn't. He waited 24 years for that promise to come to pass. 24 years of waiting, that's a whole lot of chasing after Sarah. (laughs) Then Abraham has... Isaac, and Isaac had to wait 40 years before he would find a spouse, and then another 20 years before they would have their first son. Then Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob had a brother named Esau, and Jacob and Esau had a falling out. They had a broken relationship, and they waited 20 years for their relationship to be made whole. 
make your way down to verse 5 and you come across Ruth. Ruth was a barren widow who waited and waited on God to come through for her until God finally sent her Boaz, who would become her husband, her kinsman redeemer. And we see as we continue to read that Ruth became the great-grandmother of David, probably one of the most well-known, if not the most well-known king in all of Israel's history. But David was 13 years old when the prophet Samuel told him, you are going to be the next king of Israel. He was anointed. He had the anointing, but he didn't have the crown. King Saul had the crown, but he didn't have the anointing. And so Saul got very jealous of David and tried to kill him. And so for the next 17 years, David ran hiding for his life, hiding in caves in the wilderness. And in those 17 years of waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled in his life, God was developing the heart of a king. 17 years he waited for that promise to come to pass, though. And then you make it down to verse 11, and you see that it mentions an exile to Babylon. And if you don't know about Jewish history, the exile was a 70-year period in which the Babylonians had conquered Israel and taken many of the Jewish people captive and forced them to live in a foreign land. 70 years of waiting on God. And we could read through this whole list and Look at all the different people and all the different ways that they waited. But really, when you, the whole genealogy, you can see that God's people had to wait for God's promises to be fulfilled. And at the very end of that list, in verse 16, finally it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And so Jesus finally shows up and the wait is finally over. The fulfillment of all of God's promises. He is the one that when he spoke to Abraham who said that through your lineage would come one who would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Jesus is the one that when he spoke to David, he said through your line would come a king whose rule and reign would last forever. All of the promises of God were finally fulfilled when Jesus arrived. But a lot of people, when he arrived, didn't see him as the Messiah because he didn't come in the package that they expected him to come in. See, the people expected this strong military type of leader and king. They wanted a deliverer, a rescuer. Instead, they got a baby. So a lot of people didn't know that God's promise had been fulfilled because it wasn't what they expected. A lot of people didn't know that he had arrived. In fact, at his birth, you only see a handful of people there who knew who he was. You had Joseph and Mary. You had a couple of shepherds show up at the manger because some angels appeared to them and told them what had happened. A little while later, you got some wise men, you know, from the east that come presenting gifts to this newborn king. But by and large, the rest of the people didn't know that the Messiah had come. You also got Simeon and Anna, who are these two people who, these prophets who went to the temple every single day of their lives, praying and interceding for the nation of Israel. God, would you please send a deliverer? And one day, Joseph and Mary bring little baby Jesus at eight days old to the temple to be presented in the temple. And Simeon sees them bringing Jesus and he, moved by the Spirit, you know, asks to hold Jesus and he says, this is the one I have been waiting for my whole life. My eyes have seen your salvation. My wait is over. God, you can take me home now. It's this beautiful moment where he recognizes that in Jesus, every promise God has ever given was finally fulfilled. But the irony is that Jesus was an infant which means that there would be more waiting before Jesus would begin his ministry. So Advent is a season of waiting on God who said, OMW, which prompted a response from us of, hey, where are you at? And Christmas is a celebration of when Jesus arrived and God said, I am here. I don't know if God would use emojis if he were to text today, but maybe this is what the text would look like if he were to announce, I am here. The I am is here. And our hope in this season is that 
God in Jesus, the great I am, has finally arrived. But we hate to wait, don't we? I heard a story this week of a cardiologist out in San Francisco named Dr. Friedman. And Dr. Friedman, uh, just like most doctor's offices that you've ever been to, had a waiting room, and in his waiting room were chairs for people to wait in until you know, they're called back into the doctor's office. And Dr. Friedman wanted to get his, the chairs in his waiting room reupholstered. So he sends them off to an upholsterer, and uh, the upholsterer, as he's getting ready to reupholster the chairs, calls Dr. Friedman in and says, there's you know, something different about your chairs. Uh, normally, he says, chairs kind of wear out in the place where people sit in them, in the seat. And so a lot of times the cushion has to be you know, replaced there. He goes, but the chairs in your waiting room are different. He goes, they are worn out at the front edge of the seat, uh, is what they discovered. And uh, Dr. Friedman, they kind of made this discovery that, you know, the reason that his chairs were worn out at the front edge as opposed to further back in the seat is because people in the waiting room were kind of sitting on the edge of their seat, nervously fidgeting, waiting for the cardiologist to call them back. And Dr. Friedman made an interesting uh, observation, kind of asked a rhetorical question. He said, I wonder if... The chairs are wearing on the front edge because people are nervously waiting uh, for the cardiologist to call them back. Or is it that they're in a cardiologist's office because of how much they're stressed out and waiting for everything else in life? See, Advent is a season of waiting. And all of us are waiting on something. The question is, How do we wait in a way that doesn't kill us? There's some truths that I wanna speak over you today and encourage you to remember if you're in a season of waiting. And the first one is this, if you're taking notes, write this down. You are an important part of God's plan. You're an important part of God's plan. If we could go to heaven right now, if we could kind of be transported, if God could give us the ability to kind of have a conversation with each one of the people that were mentioned in Matthew's gospel of being in the lineage, you know, the genealogy of Jesus, I'm sure on this side of it, they can look back and say, oh, I see it now. I see how God had a plan for my life. I see how my life mattered. I see how he used me in his plan for the redemption of human history. I see now that my life mattered. I see now that God had a plan. But if you could go back in history, back in time, and talk to them while they still lived, I'm sure that they would be shocked to find out that they would be in the genealogy of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Because if you go back and you look, you see that in that genealogy are idolaters and adulterers and murderers and prostitutes and Gentiles. And Matthew is, you would think that Matthew would kind of like, you know how you can crop pictures and you can kind of like edit out certain things that you don't want in the picture? But Matthew doesn't crop anything out. In fact, he keeps pulling in all of these unusual, unsavory characters And it shouldn't really be surprising to us that he does that because Matthew was one of those people. If you don't know Matthew's story, before Jesus invited him to be a disciple, Matthew was a tax collector. One of the most despised and hated groups in all of the nation of Israel. And so what Matthew is trying to tell us and show us is that no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, you can get in on God's plan. And not just get in on it, but that you have an important part to play in God's plan. Advent is a season of waiting. And because of God's grace, we need to know and remember that God has an important part for us to play in his plan. But we also need to remember, number two, that God's plan is bigger than you. It's bigger than you. See, sometimes we have a tendency to make make it all about us to make it about our little thing that we're working on. We can make it about that, that thing that we're waiting on, the thing that we're hoping for, the thing that, that's not quite right, the thing that, we can make it about our thing, and when we do that, we miss the bigger picture. And we need to be reminded that God's plan is bigger than us. 
Theodore Roosevelt used to have this nightly ritual. He had a friend named William Beebe who was a naturalist, and they would go out and have these walks and have these long conversations, and then near the end of their conversation, they would look at the night sky, the starry night sky, and they would look for a specific cluster of, of stars in the sky. And once they found it, uh, President Roosevelt would kind of recite this. And this, this became a, a tradition between the two. And I want to show you what he said. He said, that is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It's one of 100 million galaxies. It's 750,000 light years away. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our own. And then he would turn to his friend William and grin and say, now I think we feel small enough. Let's go to bed. I love that. Have you ever noticed that there's something about looking up at the night sky that just kind of right-sizes us? That kind of recalibrates our soul? That helps us to see how big and majestic God is and how small we are? See, but now we don't go to bed under the glow of the stars like they used to. Now we go to the bed under the glow of our cell phones, which does one of two things for us. Either it causes us to think that the world revolves around us, that we are the center of the universe, or we go to bed comparing ourselves to the carefully selected, edited, and filtered photographs of what people put out on social media wanting you to believe that their life is perfect, and you fall for it, and you compare yourself to them, and you go to bed depressed. There's a reason I believe that God told Abraham to look up at the stars. I will give you descendants as numerous as the stars. And one of the reasons I believe he told him to look at the stars is because Abraham was never more than 12 hours away from being reminded of God's promise to him. And we need to build these rhythms into our life where we can be regularly reminded of the plans and the promises that God has for us. But as we're reminded of them, we have to be reminded that his plan is so much bigger than us. In fact, God says this in Isaiah 55 verse nine, that just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my plans than your plans. God's plans are bigger and higher than your plans could ever be for your life. And his plans, while they are for your good, they are not for your glory. They are for his glory. In fact, in uh, just a few chapters earlier, he says this, bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. Which the apostle Peter kind of reiterates in the New Testament when he writes, but you are a chosen race. Yes, God has a important part, important plan for your life. You're a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. No matter what you do for a living, no matter what your vocation is, God's plan and purpose for your life is to bring glory, honor, and praise to him. And yet too many people make the, the goal and aim of their life to make their name great. No, God's goal for your life, his plan for your life is to make his name great to let your life be a platform for his power, for his grace. We need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded of that, which is why Kelly and I have a, uh, a wall hanging in the main sitting area of our house that says our family is set apart for his glory. It's because I need to be reminded that my life is not about me. It's about him. I want my kids growing up in a home where they are continually reminded of the fact that we have been set apart for the glory of God. That is the chief goal and aim of man, to bring glory to their creator. See, it's in the waiting seasons that we learn how to trust God and see God like we've never trusted or seen him before. See, if God gave you everything you ever prayed for or asked for or desired, it would crush you. It would. But it's in the waiting seasons that he is building the internal scaffolding and infrastructure to support the thing that he is preparing for you. See, it's in the waiting seasons that God is preparing you for the thing that he's preparing for you. But it's in the waiting seasons that we have to be reminded of his plans and that his plans are so much bigger than us. 
The third thing, if you're taking notes, that we need to be reminded of is that waiting on God is trusting that he has a plan. See, oftentimes when we find ourselves in a prolonged season of waiting, it's easy to assume that God either doesn't have a plan or that he has forgotten about us, that he doesn't care about us. But waiting, if done right, teaches us to trust that God does have a plan. One of the most loved and most often quoted verses in probably all of the Bible, Christians love to quote this, is Jeremiah 29, 11, which says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. Now, Christians are notorious for cherry-picking verses and taking them out of context, and we have to understand that the Bible can never mean what it never meant. And so we have to understand the context in which this was written. The first thing I want you to notice about this, that even though there's a verse in the New Testament that says all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. So even all of the promises that we see recorded in the Old Testament that were given to the nation of Israel, ultimately they find their fulfillment in Jesus and we can claim them as our own. But we can't take them out of context. And the first thing I want you to see about this specific verse in Jeremiah is whose plans are they? God said, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. So they are God's plans, not your plans. Second thing I want you to know about this verse or or to notice, who knows the plans? God does. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. God knows the plans. We don't always know the plan. We wish we could know the plan. How many of you like me wish you knew the plan that God had for your life? We don't always get to know it. He knows the plan. Now we can trust that because he's good, his plans for us are good. But the third thing I want you to know about this verse is when it was spoken. God spoke this to the people of Israel during that 70-year exile while they were in Babylon. 70 years of them probably wondering and waiting, God, why did you let this happen to us? Why are you letting these pagan people with false gods and idols rule over us? God, have you forgotten about us? God, do you care about us? And God is letting them know, I still have good plans for you. Even though you can't see it, I still have good plans for you. And I want you to know the same thing. If you're waiting for your marriage to to be restored, if you're waiting for a child to come back to Jesus, if you're waiting for a breakthrough in, in your treatment, I don't know what you're waiting on, but if you're in that prolonged season of waiting, God wants you to know he still has good plans for you. Even if it doesn't look like what you thought it might look like, even if, you have to, even if you have to hang out in Babylon for a few decades, it doesn't negate his plans for you. Even if you are the one that has made a mess of your life, God can turn it around. Because of God's grace and his sovereignty and his redemptive power through Jesus, he can take your mess and turn it into a message. He can take your test that you're going through and turn it into a testimony. God doesn't waste anything that you go through. I hope you don't waste your pain either. But you have to trust him. So maybe you came in here today and a lot of you in a lot of areas of your life or maybe like the people in Dr. Friedman's office in a lot of areas of your life, maybe you're just kind of nervously, anxiously sitting on the edge of your seat because you're just you're all bound up and you're all nervous. And you're not sure about the economy and you're not sure what's gonna happen in the school system and you're not sure what's gonna happen in the next election and you're not sure what's gonna happen with your job and you're not sure what's gonna happen with the bills that you're behind on your four months behind on your mortgage. You're not sure what's gonna happen with your marriage and, and there's just all of this anxiousness where you're just like, this is the posture of your life and I wonder if God maybe today in the season of Advent to the season of waiting is encouraging you to, Maybe just sit back and take a breath. I wonder if God is trying to help you hear him say, you can trust me. I have good plans for you. My plans are bigger than you, and they may not look like what you thought. but My plans are good for you. Because there's a big difference between this, right, and this. One of the verses that has been an anchor for my soul in a lot of seasons of my life is Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, which says, 
trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Now this verse is hard for a lot of people to do because it is completely countercultural, counterintuitive to the way culture tells you to live. Culture tells you to trust your gut. Culture tells you to do what feels right. Culture tells you to, to lean on your own understanding. Do what you think is right. Do what you feel is right. But God says, no. Don't lean on your own understanding. Trust me. And submit to me in all of your ways, and then I will make your paths straight. You know, my favorite place to do my, my quiet time, my devotions at home, is on my couch in the back part of our house that faces a window that faces our backyard. And my favorite posture while doing my devotions is to kind of like throw my feet out on the length of the couch so that I can just look out the window. And because so much of my life is, is this. So much of my life, I am constantly wound up and, and nervous and anxious and worried about so many things that I have zero control over. And in those morning quiet moments when I'm with the Lord and I open up his word and I just, my, my body takes a position that I want my spirit to have of just leaning back. Sometimes I even rest my head back on a pillow and I say, Lord, I just wanna be with you right now. I need to be reminded that you are with me. That while I don't know and understand how all this is gonna work out, I trust that you do, that your plans for me are good. trust you. You know, God has never, I'm a planner. I don't know how many of you are planners. Um, God has never shown me a blueprint for my life. I often wish he would. And he probably hasn't done that because if I had a blueprint, if I knew the whole plan, I would be off to the races trying to accomplish it as quick as possible. I wouldn't trust him. I'd trust the plan and I would trust my own abilities to accomplish it but I'm discovering that God is less interested in what I can build for him and he's a whole lot more interested in what he's trying to build in me. He's trying, he, see he's interested in taking you and I on a journey and he wants to develop a level of trust that we have in him that grows deeper each and every single day. And maybe you're here today and you wish God would give you a blueprint and I hate to be the one to break it to you, but God has never promised to give you a blueprint for your whole life. He has promised to be with you every step of the way. He's promised to never leave you and never forsake you. He's promised to give you peace in the midst of chaos. And he has promised, like I believe that when scripture says that his word is a, a lamp unto our feet, that when we follow with him and when we're submitted to him, when we're yielded to him, he does illuminate the next step on the path. He may not show you the whole blueprint, the whole plan, but he'll illuminate and give you wisdom for the next step that you should take in your life. In fact, if you're taking notes, why don't you go ahead and write this next point down. Waiting on God means we surrender our plans to him. Waiting on God means we surrender our plans to him. If we go back to Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, look with me at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now pause right there. Can you imagine being Mary, trying to figure out how you're going to say this to Joseph? And for that matter, can you imagine being Joseph, listening to Mary tell you, hey, Joe, uh, I don't know how to say this to you, but I'm pregnant, but you don't have to worry about it because I've not been messing around with you. This baby is from God. I mean, no, if you're Joseph, you're starting to question what Mary's been smoking. And so Joseph develops a plan, which we read about in the next verse. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he came up with a plan. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, 
Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Advent happens because Joseph was willing to surrender his plans to God's. See, Joseph never planned for Mary to get pregnant. Joseph never planned to have to deal with all of the rumors that would swirl around town around the two of them. Joseph never planned to adopt his first child. He never planned on having to be a refugee in Egypt. He never planned on being responsible to raise the Messiah in his home. Could you imagine the pressure that Joseph must have felt? Like, God, you, you want me to raise your son? Can you imagine the pressure that Joseph felt at, at that responsibility? See, but God's plans for Joseph's life were so much greater than Joseph could have ever had for his own life. But to live those plans, he had to surrender his own plans to God. And for us to live the plan that God has for our life, we have to surrender our own plans to God. And we can do that trusting not only that his plans are good, but that while we are waiting for his plans to unfold, he is still working That's the last point I want to give you today, that even while we are waiting, God is still working. I want to show you a verse in the New Testament the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Galatians that gives some context as to God's timing while we wait, and even, you know, some context to the season that we're in of celebrating the the birth of Jesus. In Galatians 4.4, Paul writes this, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. That phrase, when the set time had fully come in the English, is translated from a couple of words in the Greek that are pleroma chrono, which means complete, full measure, or the perfect time. Literally, the phrase means when time was fully pregnant, at just the right time, God sent Jesus. And looking back, we can often see the why behind a season of waiting. And I'm going to be talking to some people here today who are in a season of waiting that one day God is going to give you hindsight to see, oh, now I see why God had me waiting in that season. I couldn't see it then, but I'm so glad he didn't do what I asked him to do when I asked him to do it because now I see it. A lot of times hindsight gives us the ability to see the why behind the wait and the 400-year period that we that we talked about earlier that the people of God were waiting for God to to come through on his I'm on my way I'm gonna send somebody what was God doing while the people were waiting five things I want to quickly show you that God was doing in that season of waiting number one I don't know how many of you have ever heard of Alexander the Great you know world history Alexander the Great conquered the entire known world in a period of roughly 12 years. And why is that significant? Because for the first time in history, most of the people in that known world spoke a common language. They began to speak Greek because of his conquest of the world. Second thing that important that was happening during that time was that the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, was translated into Greek, a language that everyone could understand. Prior to 280 BC, it was only written in Hebrew, but now it was written in a language that people could understand. Third thing important that happened during the time was that the Socratic method, a new way of learning emerged where people were encouraged to engage in dialogue and ask questions as they learned new information. Fourth thing, in 63 BC, the Romans conquered the Greeks, and it led to a prolonged season of peace during which time the Romans built and developed roads and highways throughout the whole empire. And number five was the diaspora, which the Jews didn't want. They weren't allowed to live in Jerusalem, so they were forced to, to scatter and live in different parts of the Roman Empire. So what was God doing while the people were waiting? Well, for the first time in human history, everyone could read the Bible in a language they understood. People were encouraged to ask questions and God would send the answer in Jesus. 
The good news of a savior could travel in a common language along roads built by Romans through Jewish people who were scattered throughout the Roman world to Gentiles and beyond. In other words, while God's people were waiting, he was still working. And the same is true in your life. That while you're waiting, don't mistake God's silence for his absence. He is always working behind the scenes. He's preparing you for the thing that he's preparing for you. But before he does something for you, he always wants to do something in you. He wants to develop patience. He wants to develop your character. He wants to develop your, tr- your ability to trust and depend on him for everything. To trust his character, to trust his nature, and to trust that his promises are good. Don't waste the waiting. I believe this series and this season, God wants to redeem the idea of waiting on him and what, can the, what that can produce in our lives. I want to close with this verse and then we're going to pray. Isaiah 64 verse 4 says that, For since the world began, no ear has heard and no eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? I don't know how many of you here today are in a season of waiting. Maybe you're in a holding pattern right now. Maybe you're doing everything you know to do to hold on to the promises that God has made for you, the plans that you thought he had for your life. You're praying, you're, you're, you're waiting, you're hoping, trying to trust that God is who he says he is and that he can do what he said he can do. But maybe because you've been waiting so long, you're beginning to doubt. Maybe you're asking God, do you, do you remember the promise you made? Like, have I done something wrong? Are you disappointed in me? Do I have sin in my life? Like, God, why, why are you making me wait so long? Do you care about me? In fact, right now, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I wanna invite you guys to kinda like sit towards the front of your seat. Sit on the front edge of your seat. Go ahead and do it right now. Just kind of scoot forward. Sit on the front edge of your seat like you're in a cardiologist's office waiting to be called in. And I want you to intentionally think about all of the things in your life that are creating stress and anxiety. All of the things that have made it difficult for you to trust God's goodness. And as you're thinking about all of those things and bringing them to the forefront of your mind, I want to just repeat the truths that I presented to you today and remind you that you are an important part of God's plan. That God has a plan for your life, no matter what you're going through. But you also need to be reminded of the fact that God's plan is bigger than you. And waiting on him means that we have to trust that he has a plan. Some of you are beginning to doubt his plan. No, he has a plan. And this is a season for you to learn how to trust in him, that he is faithful, and that he fulfills all of his promises. But waiting on him means you need to surrender your plans to him. And this one might be the toughest one of all because you've been clinging so tightly around your plan for your life, the goals and the dreams and the aspirations that you've had and you want God to make your plans happen. But what if his plan is different? Will you surrender your plans to him? And even while you are waiting, Let me remind you this morning that God is still working. He is always working on our behalf. God works all things together for our good and for his glory. And now with those truths in your mind, I want you now to just go ahead and scoot back and lean against the back of your chair Take a deep breath, and on your exhale, just say, God, I trust you.
I trust you. So Lord, I pray that over your people today, that if they are in a season of waiting, you would remind them of your character. You would remind them of your nature. And I, I, I pray Isaiah 40 verse 31 over them, that those who wait on the Lord, those who trust in him, will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will walk. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. God, I pray that in this season of waiting, in this Advent season where we remember and celebrate your arrival and we look forward to your second coming, God, as we wait for your plans and your promises to be accomplished in our lives, would you renew our strength? With all heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you are here today and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus because you're waiting on him to answer a prayer that you've been praying. Maybe it's for a loved one, maybe it's a diagnosis, maybe it's for a relationship, I don't know what it is. But could I suggest or present that maybe the God you are waiting on is actually waiting on you? See, a lot of people think either God isn't real because he, doesn't, he hasn't answered their prayer or maybe God is just slow. And I want you to listen to the words of the Apostle Peter, who in 2 Peter 3, 9 says that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. Maybe the God you're waiting on is waiting on you to come to a point of repenting of your sins changing your mind about who you thought God was and changing direction. That's what repent means. Change your mind and change direction. You turn around and you choose to follow him. And if you're ready to make that decision today and surrender your life to Jesus, would you just boldly raise your hand all across this place? Is there anybody here that says, yeah, I need to repent. It's time for me to stop running. I need to surrender my life to Jesus and trust that he came to wash all my sins away, to make it possible for me to have a relationship with my heavenly father and for me to wait with purpose, to wait for eternity, to wait for my reward. Anybody here that says, yeah, that's me. I repent, I choose to surrender my life. Well, God, I thank you for my church family. I thank you for a room full of people who I trust are on a journey where they are getting to know you, getting to see you more clearly, learning to trust you in a way that brings purpose and meaning to the things that we are waiting for. God, I pray once more that you just renew our strength as we wait on you. And may this season that we are in as a church, as we lead into Christmas, Lord, give us a new perspective concerning the things that we are believing for and trusting you for and waiting on you for. God, we thank you even now for the life change that's gonna happen in just a couple of weeks as we bring those in our lives who don't know you, our unsaved friends and family members, our classmates, our coworkers, and our neighbors as the gospel is proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen.